So, why'd you move here? My parents got a divorce. My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? He stabbed my mom four times in the chest. Okay, Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. And it's a show where we talk about movies. And specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 130. And our movie this week was the 2001 mindbender that is Donnie Darko. And here to talk with me about it, because he had never seen it before, is Joe Hood. Joe, how are you doing? I am well. Thanks for having me on, Travis. Absolutely. You are always welcome back. And and I call this movie a mind bender. That's probably not strong enough, really, for what this movie is in a lot of ways. But I well, guess it's, it's interesting. Like, I want to talk about like what kind of movie it is right out of the gate, even before getting into it, because somehow it had felt not knowing about it for 20 years, but not having seen it. I had heard about it as a thriller or a horror or mm-hmm. sci-fi or um, just a lot of these terms. And I mean, it, it, I guess the mind bender might be the best way to describe it. I think you're right. <laughs> it, it's, it's a weird one. It's tough to define. That's actually, it's a, it's a strength of the movie. It's also a reason that it was hard to get made for Richard Kelly. So it was written and directed by Richard Kelly. And um, one of my favorite bits of trivia to this movie actually is um, that Drew Barrymore is in it. And I, especially uh, in my early days, I had a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. I would watch anything she was in. All right-minded people did. Just true. Um, But she was involved in this movie because she had uh, read the script, I think it was, and wanted it to get made. So she actually had her film production company, Flower Films, produce this movie because none of the studios were buying into it because they couldn't they couldn't wrap their heads around it it was weird and she just saw something that she liked so that her only contingency was i want to be in the movie so they cast her as the teacher and, and that's how the movie got made so we really really can thank drew barrymore for this movie getting made and then um i can't remember which production company it was because then at one point it was going to be a direct-to-video and it ended up getting a theatrical release now, the theatrical release didn't go great. It didn't make a ton of money. Um, there's reasons for that we'll kind of get into later. But but Drew Barrymore is a huge reason why this movie got made in the first place. And I liked her in the movie, too. I it, She has a very small um, role. She's not on screen much. But uh, I liked her as that kind of... She was a, an English teacher. She wasn't really going all that extreme, but it's it's to balance out or to show how how regimented and conservative this school was as like a part of like everything else that's going on in this movie but i liked her in the movie so i just wanted to bring her up real quick yeah no i i think she i much like you i like her in in everything um and and had a crush on her for most of my lifetime but uh, she her character if we want to get into the ins and outs of it and, and the plot piece the weird thing about her character is while she provided some pivotal information in moments, it also felt like if they had edited her out, 
it wouldn't have dramatically changed the movie. It was there was a lot of, and I think this was something that happened in this movie. Um, there was a lot of depth they put into multiple places mm-hmm. that didn't need to be deep, no. and I don't think it necessarily detracted from the movie, but it was also not essential. Like her whole storyline, um, uh, some of the stuff with with Sparrow just yep. seemed unnecessarily investigated um uh the the mom's character it was it was weird um it felt a little disjointed at times because of that i think it did and this was the first this was the directorial debut for richard kelly so and and watching it especially now watching it i can see that i can kind of feel that sort of young filmmaker writer director kind of trying to find his footing um so he Mm -hmm. is going in a lot of different directions. Now, this movie has a very strong cult following. Um, it was a roughly f- anywhere from 4 and a half to $6 million budget, so not, a, not much of a budget at all by f- Hollywood standards, um, even for 2000, 2001. But uh, it did not get marketed well because this movie came out in 2001, in like October, and... If you can remember, something rather significant involving airplanes happened roughly a month before this movie came out. So they pulled a lot of the marketing materials because they had shots of airplanes on them and things. And then it didn't get marketed oh, very well right. on top of nobody knowing what to call, like how to how to market this movie. So right. it didn't I'm it didn't do great. That, that It's funny. I had seen that it came out in it was Halloween weekend of mm-hmm. 2001 because I went back and double checked. Because um, later on, I think it'll be interesting to talk about what this influenced and what it was influenced by. Because mm-hmm. um, that's what I was trying to place it in the whole pantheon of, of time travel movies. Yeah. Um, but it, it didn't even occur to me. Uh, I'm trying to think. October, I got on a plane in like, the second week of October 2001. Um, and that was like, you know, we had been... You know, airlines had been shut down, and I actually went on a cruise that in October, and I called them saying, "Hey, what if we can't fly a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ahead of time?" And they said, "Hey, if you don't have insurance, then you know you're, you know, I'm sorry, but you've paid for your trip." And they called me the week before the cruise, like, "Hi, Mr. Hood, are you are you still coming? We'd love to upgrade you. We want to make sure <laughs> you're coming." Because it was right. It was probably the week before this movie came out. Yeah. We were on a cruise and, and everyone hunkered down and was afraid to get on planes. I didn't even think about the fact that, um, you know, I kept forgetting about the whole plane part of this movie. Uh, it, although it seems like it's a great way to segue into, like, what was the whole plot of Donnie Darko? Like, the plane was the linchpin of it all. Yeah, so trying to explain this movie um, is, is is more difficult than nailing Jello to a wall because it is there is time travel involved. There are parallel universes or multiverses uh, type things going on. Um, there's actually a director's cut, uh, although Richard Kelly, they called it a director's cut. He sort of, from what I read, was more of like, eh, the first version is really just as good. This is more of a special edition. Uh, it's about 20 minutes longer, and really what it does 
is it doesn't fundamentally change the movie at all. They added in um, some pages where you get like a, a slug up on the screen, sort of a, a thing goes up where it's pages from the book, The Philosophy of Time Travel. Um, it's sort of, I, I wouldn't say it dumbs it down, but it fills in some gaps mm-hmm. a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it, there's there's philosophy involved in this and there's uh, there's it touches on religion and it touches on time travel. There's sci-fi elements, there's horror elements, there's so much going on in here. Phil in the chat makes a good point. Marketing or not, this movie was just too weird for a mass audience. And it really is. And oh, yeah. and I'd mentioned how it's got kind of it's got a cult following, but it's also got a polarizing following because you sort of people fall into two camps often with this movie, uh, which is this is the most amazing, intelligent thing I've ever seen, or it's pretentious crap. And it, it's oh. up its own butt. And I can see both sides of that coin. Like I can see both those extremes from people. Um, I don't really fall on either extreme. Like I like the movie quite a bit, but there are times where it's like, okay. So it's just weird for weird sake. Um, right. But I really enjoy the movie. I saw it for the first time. I did not see this in theaters. Uh, I was actually about two years later, I was in New York city visiting my cousin and he'd asked me if I'd um, ever seen this movie. And I don't remember hearing much about it. I think I had heard the name, um, but again, marketing, there wasn't a lot of commercials for it that I had seen up to that point. And he was like, Oh, you got to watch this. And my cousin living in Brooklyn, um, very much a hipster. So this was right up his alley. So we got, we got some chicken and we sat in his apartment and watched it on like a 17 inch CRT TV. And, and I was blown away. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I never quite fell into the, like, this is the most profound thing I've ever, um, watched, but I also didn't smoke enough weed to, to really go in that direction, um, (laughs) ever, but you know, you know, what's funny to me when you talk about that Uh, one, I I'm frankly, horrible thing to say i'm impressed with myself that i never got spoiled on this like i i, I kind of i got a vibe that it was a time travel thing mm-hmm. but never i always had it somewhere on the back burner along on a list going i want to watch that someday we'll see what it is and by this point time travel is not a too much of a plot twist or a spoiler to to freak you out mm-hmm. i mean it, it, we you know we had a tentpole superhero movie that was a time travel heist. We had right. We have TV shows that are, or we have. There's a, um, you know, there are movies that are Groundhog Day. I was going to say, but even more of a rom com. Uh, Groundhog Day, but in a party. Groundhog Day, but you know, uh, yeah, horror movie version of like Groundhog horror Day. Movie yeah, um, yeah, and so like time travel almost is its own genre now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of it, and I reminded myself of this and going into this, it's like, okay, so 2001, like what, what hadn't gotten into the world yet? Like what, what movies and shows that we just kind of roll with now weren't around yet, uh, to ground the excitement people had about this movie. Yeah, um, I was kind of amazed when I looked and saw that Groundhog Day came out a couple of years before this, um, maybe even more. Yeah, Groundhog Day would have been that was early mid nineties. That was like ninety three. Ninety three, actually. Yeah, ninety three yeah. sounds right for that. So it was a few years right. before this. But like this is pre um, 
primer. Um, right. Is a, is a big one for that. It, it's weird because there's time travel in this, but it's not, I wouldn't classify it as a time travel movie because Donnie himself is not traveling backwards and forwards in time. Right. Per se. There, it, it leans a lot more on like, there's a weird time loop that they never really yeah. establish exactly what starts it. Mm-hmm. Only kind of how he has to finish it. And, and, and again, it's like a, it's not. It's uh, uh, like a, it's a little pocket dimension. Yeah. Yep. Like There's whole, like a tangent universe. Mm-hmm. There's 28 days. Um, one of the things I read that I have mixed feelings about is the extra pages you talked about in the the extended version. Mm-hmm. They apparently had, and I went and looked into this too. They apparently had companion websites that were an early stage ARG for it. Trying to yeah. remember when I Love Bees came out. I think this was still a little bit before that. I think um, so. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, but they had the explanation of like character motivation and plot points about why was the you know why was the bunny why was Frank showing up and how were the how was the teacher like why did Drew Barrymore's character talk mm-hmm. about cellar door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and apparently that was all explained in the website that you could go to later, which yeah, I'm one regard. It, it is. And I think in some ways, cause I've watched both versions. I think in some mm-hmm. ways I, I prefer the theatrical version because it leaves things more open-ended and it lets you fill in blanks because right. I, I like a movie to let me come to some conclusions I don't want it to be completely open-ended. I want some explanations of what's going on. But what this movie does is it gives me just the the right amount of breadcrumbs where now I can kind of run with it because of the questions that it's asking itself. Like there's some movies where they don't explain enough and Mm -hmm. you're just left with like, well, what was, what was any of that? This is like, because of the nature of like, uh, kind of predetermination versus free will versus, living in this pocket dimension and these time loops and all this kind of stuff. The, the open-ended part of that is, is intriguing to me. So yeah, those pages really the only one that I liked was there was one that set up the fact that a tangent universe gets created and they're, they're only stable for a couple of weeks and they can cause the end of existence. Right. So there's a there's a whole lot like you can go on YouTube, search for Donnie Darko, and you're gonna find all sorts of ending explained and Donnie Darko explained sure. videos and and most of them work really well. I think the biggest thing for me is like they never the even even with those pages, you still have to you still have to kind of interpret your own of like when did it start? What was the inciting incident that that branched this reality off and put Donnie into right. this? Because it had to have happened before the um, uh, engine falls into the house because he's brought out of the house in order for that to not kill him. But then it's like, okay, so now there's the determination factor of, well, it's the bunny Frank who's call, who's talking to him and getting him out of the house, which we find out mm-hmm. later Donnie shoots him. That's how Frank got there in the first place. There's these, right. it, it gets... It really, really can get confusing, and it can really make you make you scratch your head quite a bit. Um, again, uh, you know, the the use of mind altering substances can hurt or uh, or enhance that. It's depending on how you are. Um, 
Sure. Well, and the other thing that was curious to me about sort of trying to track the precise loops, um, and, and this was one of the, like, just the whole idea of, in those extra pages, there was something about, like, the one person is all important mm-hmm. in the Tangent Universe, and they could have, you know, super strength and control, you know, hydrokinesis and, and yeah. superpowers. It won in a way that I didn't need that explanation watching the movie. Like, I was no. fine. Yes, it was curious that they buried, he buried an axe into the demon dog statue, <laughs> the, um, which the, is a whole sideline I want to get into. What school had, like, what, that, yes, that is that a was, demon. That is, that dog well, is, not, like, that's not a normal dog statue. Yeah, and it's not that's a not normal a dog statue. It's a terrible mascot, and that thing is squatting for a poop. Like, first thing I'm thinking is, why do they have a statue of a dog pooping in the middle of their school? Well, and it's a, it's a, like a dog-headed person. Yeah, it's weird. Right. A mongrel. Yeah, no. But, but rolling back to the end, and that, I can see that as one of those things that people go, there's more meaning here. This is deeper. Look at this. Like, this has significance. And I think, I feel like one of the things that is probably latched onto a lot with this movie is, all of the opportunities to go, oh, look at the significance, how significant, oh, blah, 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 blah. Look at how significant this is. Look at how significant that is. Mm-hmm. Cellar door. It's deep and significant. Um, d- d- even though, you know, it's a huge giant plot hole because why were those random kids inside the cellar of the old lady? Yeah. We never understand that. Nope. Um, <laughs> we're never going to either. Uh, you're uh, right. You know, and I, but, I think there's a lot of like red herrings. Yeah. There's a lot mm-hmm. of uh, significance red herrings in this movie too. Like there's, there's mm-hmm. deep philosophical stuff to talk about, but there's also stuff that's just like, okay, what, why, you know, the, the, the bullies showing up, by the way, one of the bullies we haven't mentioned yet, Seth Rogen. Oh yeah. In his first film, his first film ever was Donnie Darko. And the first line he ever spoke on a film is I like your boobs. Just like to point that out. So that tracks it does. Um, but yeah, like why are they there at all? And they're, they're, they're at the house. They're wearing the pantyhose on their head to disguise themselves, but then immediately take them off mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Like they're the worst bullies ever. Um, but yeah, that's a strange thing. Um, the whole kind of like, there's a lot of weird stuff like that, but I do, again, I like it because I, art, is at its best when it's challenging us and making us question things and think about things. The thing that I have always liked about Donnie Darko, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's pretentious, which look, it's Richard Kelly and he went on to do things like Southland tales and has a, has a track record of rather pretentious stuff. But whether you think it's this, the most pretentious thing you've ever seen or the most mind blowing thing you've ever seen, it generates conversation. It generates questions and it makes us talk about it. And that for me is good art. Mm-hmm. all the way around that's really and and i love that about that i like that about this movie because you can pick apart all sorts of pro, uh, points in this you can you can focus on the whole uh idea of well in this tangent universe the child pornographer gets caught but when donnie resets everything he's not caught anymore mm-hmm. he's back on his own you mentioned how the the one page talks about the different uh, abilities that the, the, um, I can't remember what they call it. Uh, 
the, the enlightened one or whatever gets. We'll just call it the chosen one. The chosen one, because that's basically who it is. Um, yep. And one of those was, you know, water and fire manipulation. And one of the right. explaining videos talked about how when he goes to the mansion and sets it on fire, he uses his ability of fire manipulation. I'm like, no, what he used was gasoline and some matches because we right. see him doing that. So you're, you're reading in a little bit much there for my taste, but you know how it is. Um, some people are going to. Uh, okay, Phil does bring up a good point. There was the throwaway line about valuables and jewels at the old lady's house, at uh, Rebecca okay. Sparrow's house. But, you know, that I kind of don't buy that because you feel like that would have been something that, because those kids were never really, ah, uh, no. No, now that I think about it, they mention that, and Donnie mentions um, to Gretchen when they first talk as he's walking her home, you know, check your backpack. Those guys like to steal, steal stuff. Oh, yeah. So, all right, there's an explanation. I'll buy that. There we go. <laughs> they were there to rob her. And also, I did find out Cellar Door, um, in the commentary, Richard Kelly mentions that that was that whole bit about the linguist saying that was the best, the most beautiful combination of words in the English language. Yeah. That he attributed it to Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. But according to what I read, it's trivia, take it with a grain of salt, it was actually J.R.R. Tolkien that said it. Um, it was a paraphrase of something that he had said uh, about combinations of words. Um, so I like to think it was Tolkien. I would, I would be fine with that. And to say to think cellar door is what he what he deems to be the most beautiful combination of words. But it, that's definitely one of those where it's like, that's, you know, that there's that, there's the conversation he has with the physics teacher, the science teacher, Noah Weil, right. or Wiley, yeah. um, that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and then the fact that as Donnie gets into a more um, religious track with it, immediately science teacher is just like, nope, I can't talk about this anymore. I'll lose my job. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know that Drew Barrymore would have continued talking with him about it. That's why she lost her job. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's well, fun stuff the like that. And the fact that they're, it was weird. Like they were, I don't know if clearly a couple was the right thing to say. And like they, they, they were kind of nonchalantly a couple. The yes. Drew Barrymore and the, the English teacher and the science teacher. Um, in a way that was never called out. Actually, it wasn't even called out in the little, until the little ending where time reverted back to normal and you saw them in bed together. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another one of those things where, you know, there was the subtlety and the layers that was really compelling. Mm-hmm. Like, just like we've got a little bit of you know, description here that we're not going to make a, big deal about but it adds depth to the whole story yeah absolutely no there, there's a lot of fun fun little things like that in here and i i do keep mentioning the special edition but there was some for the most part it's the same what they did was they would add like a little piece here a little piece there one of them was there was a short moment between the mom and older sister where she the mom confronts her and is like how did you know he wasn't taking his medication anymore Mm-hmm. And, and all that stuff. And then later on, and actually the thing that I liked the least about the special edition was the final scene with Donnie and his um, therapist. When he goes to leave, 
there's a tacked on part where she stops him and says, you can stop taking your medication. They're just placebo. And I was like, no, I don't want that because I want the, I want the ambiguity and the questioning of, is he actually seeing these things? Is this stuff really happening? Or is he really paranoid schizophrenic and it's all in his head? Mm -hmm. Because Don, Donnie Darko is an unreliable narrator and the story is all from his point of view. So him being an unreliable narrator, I don't want that explained. I want that ambiguity there so that I'm constantly questioning what's actually going on. Is he really seeing a six foot tall rabbit? It's the scariest damn rabbit you'll ever see, by the way. Or is he just nuts and he burned somebody's house down? That's that to me is a much more compelling thing. Or, and this was the take that I jumped onto was looking at the description, watching him throughout it. I did track with things I've seen both in fiction and in a couple of unfortunate situations in real life with people who have had psychotic breaks mm-hmm. where they've, they've disconnected from reality. Uh, it occurred to me that the entirety of that time loop could have been an internal psychotic break that happened to him while he was going to sleep and then a plane engine crashed on him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, uh, they don't really discuss the, we don't know where it came from afterwards. Mm-hmm. Right. It was just all, he had this break and, and the behaviors in there with the hallucinations, with the, the idea that I am the chosen one and I'm, this story yep. is all about me yep. and the powers I have that enable me to fix everything. And this one, you know, there's a sort of a demonic entity that I'm fighting against and I'm the one that's going to save everything. All of that tracks with, and actually I don't think, I can't remember which diagnosis it is, but, but I, I, I someone I knew in high school and high school and college had that experience that I was on the outside of while he went through it. Um, and I could see the similarities here with a psychotic break yeah. uh, of delusions of grandeur and all of that. And I thought, Oh, you know, it's entirely possible that this is not a, which is like what, um, what's the movie Jacob's ladder where this is all just the things that happened in a brain in the moments before it passed me, the person passed away. That's a great, uh, comparison. I would also bring up one that I just did recently for the show, which is Brazil, um, mm. where the whole last, uh, kind of 20 minutes of Brazil, um, kind of falls into that same category of like, is it at all in his brain or what did he have a psychotic break? Um, and that to me is, is interesting and compelling because this movie doesn't, it, it plays all of the tangent reality and time loop stuff very earnestly yeah. so that you could believe in this world. That's what happens if you mm-hmm. want to, or if you don't, if you don't buy any of that and you just want to say, no, it was all in his head the whole time but we're not meant to like, we're meant to think that it wasn't. So it, that to me is compelling. And I like that. Yeah. So I just didn't like that bit in the special edition where she's like, yeah, it's a placebo. No, no, no. Don't tell me that. Like let's, let's keep feeding the idea that it's all, it could be either way, but you know, we're not going to explicitly say this is 100% real. And yes. Yeah. Well, that, and I think I'm going to guess you and I would agree that one of the strengths of this movie is, it's uh, how it keeps its cards close to its chest mm-hmm. and how it, it, the things it doesn't say. 
Absolutely. I think There's are, a lot that that's isn't. something I enjoyed about this movie. Even when I had issues and challenges with following certain parts and kind of had to willfully suspend disbelief. <laughs> um, uh, and even just the, I don't know, the, it was weird to me to, to feel like there's so much that was amazing and innovative in 2001 from storytelling and concepts we explored that now are 20 years later have just been, you know, paved over and, you know, built into the norm. Um, that I think this, uh, I, I felt, I will admit, having heard all the things I heard ahead of time, I did feel kind of a, not a letdown. You know when you, someone talks about, like, this is the best ice cream I've ever had. It's my hometown ice cream place. Mm-hmm. You come visit, have this ice cream. It's the best thing ever. And you go there and it's good. Yeah. <laughs> that was my feeling. Yeah. Well, it's, because it's you're, you're, you're coming into the thing, one, without the background in it, but also... Mm-hmm. 20 years plus later where it's influenced so much. It's kind of like somebody seeing the original Blade Runner today mm-hmm. and all of the sci-fi that Blade Runner helped to bring about and influence. Right. And then they go back and they right. watch that. I've talked to people and they're like, I didn't really care for Blade Runner. It was boring and it didn't do anything for mm-hmm. me. I'm like, no, I, I can totally get that because you've heard nothing but how great Blade Runner is for 30 plus years. And now you get to see it. And it's, it's never going to meet that kind of an expectation. So I can see that happening with this where it's like, it's good, but, but you, you've also had 20 something years of kind of hearing about it. Right. And I tried to, to shift myself into that. Um, I, I do have to say this though. One of the things that jumped to mind, which was weird, and I'm going to call out your shirt specifically. I, there was a real Stranger Things vibe to me, and I don't know if it was just it being set in the '80s, mm-hmm. so aesthetically it was similar. Um, it, maybe the upside down was kind of you know similar in the in the darkness of it, but it was uh, it like it it wasn't you know I could see how Stranger Things helped or or was inspired by the aesthetic choices and just the celebration of uh, how screwy the eighties could be. Yeah. And, and it was really intriguing to me to feel reminiscent of stranger things when I was watching this when it was like, not, you know, the parallels, except for the fact that there was something extraordinary going on. There weren't really deep parallels between Donnie Darko and stranger things. That's true. But I do see some tonal, uh, similarities to it. And mm-hmm. what I liked about this was something that I actually liked about Stranger Things. Stranger Things is set in the 80s and it celebrates the 80s, but it doesn't quite get to the point of being self-parody of the 80s mm-hmm. and kind of like a caricature. And sure. that was the same with this. This is clearly set in the 80s, not only from the title cards that say October 2nd, 1988, but it never felt like they were just trying to like slam your face in the fact that it was the eighties. The closest they got to that was it's in Middlesex, Virginia. And, uh, they definitely played on kind of political, um, leanings in the family where they're, it's a sort of a, a middle upper middle class neighborhood. And I mean, the movie starts out the first line in the movie is I'm voting for Dukakis Mm -hmm. and the the Bush Dukakis thing. and, And the fact that the dad is, who, by the way, was my favorite character in the movie. 
the dad in this movie is, is awesome. Um, he just cracked me up. I, I don't know what it is. I think it's because he's a doofus of a dad, but he's not like dumb. He just, mm-hmm. he just is kind of this guy. I, I, the fact that he laughs at his kids, weird jokes, um, and, uh, an inappropriate humor. Like there's something about him, but I also like that interplay where she's the rebellious one. Yes. It's a little bit of an exposition dump around the dinner table to start the movie off, but I didn't mind it too much. It wasn't the worst I've ever seen in that, in that stretch either. Um, so yeah, I, I, and, and that's, that's kind of another one of those layers, right? You've got the conservative versus liberal, uh, around the dinner table, but then the school, and the whole PTA meeting, and you've got the character of Kitty who hijacks the PTA meeting to complain about right. the book. Um, she was Dwight Schrute's babysitter. Mm-hmm. I was like, there was one. Of, there were there were so many people in this cast that I had to go look up later. <laughs> so um, funny, she was in. I, I did Matchstick Men last week to finish off okay. Cage Palooza, and she's in that. She has a small role in Matchstick Men where she's a, a woman at a laundromat. And I made the comment watching that movie last week, like. Well, it was nice to see her in a movie where I don't hate her character. Like with every fiber of my being, because she is she is absolutely supposed to be annoying in this movie. And she's sure. played to perfection that way. Um and Matchstick Men, she was not uh that at all. Um oops, I didn't mean to bring that up. Um Beth Grant is her name, by the way. Uh and I had seen her recently in uh Willie's Wonderland, which I watched. Um was an not for the show, just watched in general, and she was really annoying in that and meant to be. She's Beth Grant is good at playing characters like that. She is pitch perfect as Kitty in this movie. Um yeah. and annoying as all get out, but that's what she needed to be. Uh, I'm beginning to doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. It's such a meme worthy line. It's such a well delivered there's that one and the scene in the principal's office after. So again, here's another layer, which is the Patrick Swayze character is his motivational speaker with his, right. his overly dumbed down concept of fear and love. And she's, she's all about anything that this guy does. So she's teaching the class on it. And Donnie, of right. course, being Donnie Darko, he, he bristles at that. And he talks about how you can't do that. They immediately cut to that scene in the principal's office, and that one cracked me up because they set up that scene so well that the reveal of her standing behind the principal is perfect. Like, it's such a good comedic timing moment. Um, And she is so serious about it. And then the dad just starts laughing immediately and tries to cover it up with a cough. And that's the kind of stuff I love from the dad. Uh, There was another, another one of those special edition director's cut scenes with him after the night where they have um, the dance number with the younger daughter right? and Donnie burns the house and he, you know, all that kind of stuff when he comes home that morning, by the way, his parents drink in the morning. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but every morning he comes home out of nowhere. One of them is drinking. When he comes home to start the movie, his mom is sitting there reading Stephen King's it with a glass of wine. I saw that she was reading Stephen King's It. I saw the line. I didn't register that it was the morning. Oh, my word. Yeah, and then later on, the scene in the special edition, he comes home and his dad's sitting out by the on the patio table with like a glass of scotch. And mm-hmm. it's clearly the morning. Uh, but he has a great 
there's, it's a pretty fun scene. It, it bears no, nothing on the plot at all. Um, but he basically is, is telling, uh, Don, he's like, Donnie, you're, you're a smart kid and people are going to complain about that or, or call you weird. Don't worry about them. They're all, they're all idiots. They're, they're it's all bullshit. But he's also kind of drunk when he's telling them this. So <laughs> at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. Awesome. Um, but yeah, just some of the deliveries of some of the lines from from Beth Grant are just perfect, just pitch perfect. Um, they're really, I mean, Patrick Swayze, for not being in the movie that much, I remember him all the time from this oh, for yeah. some reason. He embodied that role well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, actually that's one of the... Th- I was just going to say, apparently the- wore all his own clothes. Like those were oh, his clothes terrible. from the 80s. Um, but he embodied that, that character well, and it made me think of just the, the body language and body work throughout, um, Mm -hmm. Dylan Hall, he was, he did a great job with his nonverbal acting throughout so many portions of this movie and just seeing the difference. There were just points in time where Donnie became ominous. Oh yeah, wasn't saying anything. He just changed with his with his shoulders and his face, and became this ominous creature that you know made me wonder. Oh, are we are we pivoting into the horror part of this? Is this this the scary part of the movie? Because a little concerned about about yeah. this now. Yeah, and this, I mean, he was young when he made this. He was only probably twenty ish, twenty twenty one, playing like a seventeen eighteen year old, um, mm-hmm. which is actually surprisingly close to playing for age uh, as a teenager. One of the rumors was that, or not rumor, but um, Vince Vaughn was originally going to be Donnie Darko. And Vince Vaughn was like 30 at the time. Uh, And he ended up not doing it, thankfully, uh, because that would have been tough to buy him as a high school senior. Um, But it wasn't, he was young, but he had been acting for a while. Um, I think he started, you know, he started acting uh, like early '90s as a kid, um, Gyllenhaal did, but he's fantastic. He's so good in this movie. Um, you're right. He he flips from being because the clip I played at the beginning, like his giddiness when he finds out that her dad has emotional problems. He's like, really? I have those mm-hmm. too. You know, yeah. there's like there's that. He plays the kind of aloof. Uh, I loved the subtle moments after he would do something or say something to his mom, um, real harsh, and then immediately you'd he'd have this look of a, a little bit of regret and like feeling bad for what he had said. Like he just portrayed that really well, that kind of the teenager aspect of like, you're going in a thousand different directions at once and then you lash out and then you feel mm-hmm. bad because you lashed out because it's not really his mom's fault. And he sort of knows that. And that was, an, that was another moment that I actually liked in the extended version, which is there's a, a moment when she's leaving with the daughter for star search where he kind of mm-hmm. stops her and is just like, mom, you know, sort of a, I'm sorry, I'll be better type of thing. I'm, I'm doing okay now. Cause there's the moment in the movie where he says, what's it like having a son who's crazy? I think right. something along those lines. There's a scene later on where he's like, mom, my brain's not really broken. So he's, he's trying. And I like that. And that came through, I think from him, like Gyllenhaal's good in this movie. It was also really smart to cast his sister as his sister. That was, that was nice. a lot of fun. 
because that you don't have to deal you don't have to uh, try to build the sibling rivalry it's already there they can they can do that quite well um but yeah i i can't talk enough about how good jake gyllenhaal was in this movie i like him as an actor i've seen him in a lot of stuff and he's he's usually pretty good um in everything but this is like he's robert graysmith in zodiac one of my favorite movies period and i liked him in that and it's such a different character without him having to be like this kind of daniel day lewis method actor right he doesn't like i don't think he disappears into roles so much as he's just a good actor he can play these different parts whether it's jarhead whether it's brokeback mountain um mm-hmm. or donnie darko he, he just he embodied that he also didn't blink a whole lot and that was the thing that he tried to do was not blink and that makes him look creepier um, oh wow! In in the movie, if you go back and watch it again, kind of pay attention to that. He he definitely, especially any of the scenes where he's dealing with Frank, because he would he would lower his head and start looking through the kind of the the top of his eyelids a little bit more, um, and he would stop blinking and he would just it was crazy like he would get that thousand yard stare a little bit, like the engine was running but he wasn't really piloting <laughs> too well. Yeah, yeah. I never noticed the blinking part, but. I can, I can feel it. <laughs> exactly. I think back to it. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. That's the thing with something like that is you don't think about it in the moment, but if you think about it afterwards, or if you're told, yeah, he didn't blink, and you go back and you look, you're like, that explains why I was uncomfortable with him for most of that movie, because he really does make you feel uncomfortable a lot. Um, and they they did a good job of portraying like how smart he was because there's the the line where he, the principal talks about his Iowa test score as being intimidating. Um, but even right. like even the way he breaks down silly stuff like the Smurf talk, uh, the Smurfs conversation itself. Oh yeah, is number one. That's a, a super Tarantino like dialogue, right? Like that's a conversation oh, you would expect to hear uh, around a, a table in a Tarantino movie. Um, but like that whole conversation is great because it ends with his friend being like, Donnie, why you always got to be so smart on us? <laughs> like, it's just, I, I honestly, right after that scene, one of the things I thought and I wrote down, I was like Smurf scene. This is a reason a lot of nerds loved this movie is because they related. <laughs> like this is, this is those early, this is the conversations that we love seeing people have in media because we've had them with our friends. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, oh, oh, I forgot to mention this. And this was one of those when I was talking about like kind of important or significant red herrings. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the red herrings that I remembered because I noticed him at the end of the movie is the guy in the red jogging suit. Yes. I was just seeing that note for me. I'm like. Yeah. So he shows oh. up uh, and it's a, it's a funny, the punchline of the first time you see him is great. Because she's right. just like, yeah, plus there's a fat guy in a jaw in a red jogging suit over there. And then it just cuts yeah. 180 degree cut and he's just putting his cigarette out and walking away. Um, but then that same guy shows up at the end of the movie or outside of the party across the street in the same right. red jogging suit with like a flashlight. And so immediately your brain's like, well, wait a minute, this, this is important. This guy is important. Mm-hmm. He isn't. He's, he's like with the FAA. And... He's supposed to just be following the family to try and figure out what happened and if they know anything. Oh. But it's one of those where it's it's totally a red herring, right? Like you're made to Did, think that he's important and he really isn't. Because 
then when at the very end of the movie, when they're showing the aftermath of the thing falling, he's one right. of the agents standing standing there talking. Oh, that's amazing. I, I hadn't noticed that. I was just thinking he was, it was just one of those layers that just be threw on for extra texture. And it kind of is, but I like that because again, it makes you think it, you're paying attention now to something. You're seeing that in the background. You might not even consciously realize it maybe the first time because you're thinking about other things, but it's one of those rewatchability points of a movie like this, where you can go back and you can watch again and you're paying attention to the background. You're paying attention to, um, you know, silly things like, uh, what's being written on the board or, right. um, one of the things I read, and this was great is if you look at that whiteboard on the, on the refrigerator, at the beginning of it, you see like, where's Donnie? And there's a little Care Bear sticker in the corner. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and Care Bears, you know, they make the light come out of their chest and they have those weird multicolored like liquid spears that come out of everyone's chest as their sort of oh, yeah. determination thing. And I was like, that's somebody in the, in the set dressing department paying attention and just putting a nice little Easter egg in there. Like that's cool stuff to see. I, lo- I love that. Um, so yeah, M- music. I want to talk about two specific scenes with music. Um, okay. Actually three technic. Uh, yeah, I'll say three. First one is the opening. Cause the movie starts off with Donnie like sleeping in the middle of the road. Yes. And he gets on his bike and he rides into town and it's an echo in the bunny man song as he's riding into town. Um, and I love that opening because I love shots set up like that, where it's sort of these long tracking shots and you get to kind of get some background and some exposition about characters without anybody having to give any dialogue. So you've got Donnie riding into the house and here's the dad out front and he's, He's using the leaf blower, and when when his daughter comes up to ask him about using the car, he just turns the leaf blower on her and and sprays air yeah. at her for a second, and then starts laughing. And like you get, that's a great shorthand for they have a good relationship. There isn't this contention there between father and daughter, and all you see is that ten seconds, and that's all you need to know. Um, so then when they start their dialogue, and she's talking about voting for Dukakis and sort of the way that he reacts to that, like you still get that they're you, you already know that they get along well, regardless of if they're going to argue about this thing. So I like that in the extended version. That's a different song. It's an in excess song. And I didn't like it as much. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but go ahead. Well, no, I'm just, I'm looking at the soundtrack now. Um, and if it is, it, was it never tear us apart? Uh, I think so. Because that's a that would be a really weird song to place there. Um, one of the things for me, watching that opening, it it set it temporarily for me as well, pretty clearly, which was kind of amazing. But I went back and once that actually had the date cards up there, I realized 1988 was my sophomore year of high school. Oh, and so I the songs all rang true. I saw the Mothers Against Drunk Driving thing and i realized because the their influence started to wane in the mid to late 90s and i was like oh okay i'm like i have an idea of where this is and what's going on and then yeah the the music all for me all of the songs were familiar many of them to the point where i was singing along oh yeah Um, being, being a child of the 80s that was a really amazing bit 
Well, there was so the the opening. I liked that shot, and I just I liked using Echo and the Bunnymans, the Killing Moon, better than you're right. It was in excess, never going to tear us apart, or never tear us apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the shot that starts off with the back of the bus and flips kind of, and then is Donnie walking into school and sort of that that tracking shot through the hallway and you're seeing all the different characters and, and right. all of that. And that was, um, it was a accelerated too, wasn't it? It or, had some of that like speed up and then slow down. Um, yeah. and I think what they did was they, I think they shot the whole thing over cranked for slow-mo. So then in mm-hmm. the edit, they would just speed up parts here and there. Um, I love, I love again, a shot like that because now you're establishing all these different characters real quickly. You're seeing them all. We have seen several of them already and we're getting a recap of some of them and meeting some for the first time, like the bully character. Um, and then they're apparently doing cocaine in the hallway of the school, which was like, okay. uh, (laughs) Probably the least realistic thing in this movie was that, um, and that's saying quite a bit, but I, I liked how they did all that. And that was a, a great song from Tears for Fears. Um, which is another one of those that I was just like, yeah, I love it. Uh, and, and I like that whole scene. And then the very end, uh, which we've touched on a little bit, which is the, the moment where Donnie has gone back in time. The jet engine has fallen on him. And now we're getting these, all, all the characters of the movie sort of waking up from what, probably is a bad dream for them. Um, And that's something that in the book and in the extended edition, they talk about people affected by the tangent universe can sometimes feel echoes of it, but they may not understand exactly what's going on. So that's sort of what they were playing on there. But that is such a good cover of mad world by Gary Jules, like just iconic cover of that song and used so well in this movie. It was almost a different song. Yeah. It originally was going to be U2's MLK. And they changed it because they couldn't get rights for that. And I'm so glad that they they had to change that one up because Mad World just fits so perfectly. And the way Gary Jules does that version fits that scene and the tone of the movie and everything just pitch perfect. Oh, yeah. that that uh, Changing that song, I it feels like they wrote that scene to fit that song. It does, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't feel like anything else in there would make any sense. So I definitely was, uh, that was an interesting piece of trivia for me. They also, apparently, um, they changed it to Duran Duran's Notorious for the dance scene, but it was it was actually shot to and cut to um, West End Girls by Pet Shop Boys, which I think, you know, that could have worked too. Uh, sure. Pet Shop Boys, Duran Duran, um, either one of those works. These these are the two Pandora stations I put on when I'm doing work in the garage. <laughs> oh, I love that. So I was thinking about this. The, one of the funny things, and I will admit, it's a weird point, watching the dance number and everyone celebrating it, and they're going to go on Star Search, and I'm thinking, wow, we had much lower standards for dance in, in the 19... 19- <laughs> And I don't know if it's the it's supposed to be doing bad '80s dance or just what we accepted in 2000. Um, and I will fully acknowledge, like my house, we watched the not Dancing with the Stars, but the actual "So You Think You Can Dance," like mm-hmm. the the dance contest for professional dancers, and they're you know that age and doing stuff. Uh, but I think again, that for me, that was one of those things that I reflect on 
just over the past 20 years, everything has gotten more intense. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like, like there's, there's now competitive disc golf with five figure prizes. Yep. Right. And when I was, you know, in 2009, in the late nineties, 2000, I was playing disc golf with my friends for fun and we got a disc, (laughs) you know? And so dance is like the fact that the dance is way more intense. Uh, I will it, say what I remember of watching Star Search, that was about the level of stuff you would see on Star Search. So sure. I, can, I can remember that. Um, sure, we had one, um, a local one, I think it was called Star of the Day or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, it was totally like your mom and your music teacher think you're really good. So yeah. you should go on this show that is one step above uh, community, you know, community access. Yeah. Um, but I... I really, I just enjoy the different levels on which you can enjoy this movie. Um, and again, I can fully understand if somebody doesn't like it, if they think it's just pretent, pretent, pretentious crap, I get that. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Like you're certainly valid to have that, that feeling. I just feel like this is an enjoyable movie on a few different levels, but don't try to make sense of it because you're not going to. You're just going to chase your tail trying to, trying to figure out what this movie is about. Because it's not really yeah. meant to be figured out. Like, it's meant to be a philosophical conversation at the end of the day of some sort. Um, because it does, you know, it doesn't really define its rules of time travel, but it also follows whatever rules it does define. Sure. Um, so I, I just. I think that overall, this is. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you got to see it because I think it is a movie that, if you're into sci-fi, if you're into time travel, if you're into like weird movies at all, it's well worth seeing. Uh, and, and I'm glad that you got to see it. It sounds like you enjoyed it overall. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny as I look at my notes, the very last one, which feels so painfully on the nose for our time. And my last note is this movie is a whole mood. Like, like, and it, it's kind of like, that's, that's the only way I can describe it. Like, I, I don't, the plot I wouldn't rave about the acting. I would rave about the soundtrack I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a good, this movie was a good aesthetic, both intellectually and artistically for me. Um, I think uh, it was, it was fun. Even the, I like the crazy intention blobs people had, I was like, oh, look, it's the same CGI they used in the abyss. Yeah, right. right. Just 12 years later. It's early. It's early early year CGI stuff. Sweet. Um, Also, a quick trivia note on those. I thought this was funny because I've mentioned a few times about uh, smoking a lot of pot. If you want to watch this movie is um, that that concept was uh, thought up by Richard Kelly while he was watching football high. Because he was watching a football game and Madden, John Madden was doing his Telestrator stuff. And apparently Richard Kelly was just high watching that and thought up this idea of like these things coming out of people's chest, determining where they go because somebody is pointing them in that direction or drawing it out for them. So I thought that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I definitely, I'm with you on, on a lot of that. Um, Oh, one last piece of trivia, because this is the kind of IMDB style trivia that just makes me chuckle. Um, when the entire school is flooded, you can see a message underneath the mascot statue. It says, they made me do it. Later in the scene at the Halloween party, just before the end, 
you can see a shot of a message on the fridge which says, Frank was here, went to get beer. The two texts are in the same handwriting, which is a hint at the fact that it, that the Frank who went out to get beer is the same Frank as Donnie's imaginary bunny. Really? Really? That that Yes. I think that's made so, fairly obvious by that point in the movie. I thought that the Frank went out was actually not the sort of real-time Frank, but the Frank Bunny ghost <laughs> writing on the fridge. And I didn't even think about it, but that was like the same handwriting there. Yeah. It, that's funny. Those are those are the trivia bits where I'm like you you thought about this a little too much, and then decided that you would put this on IMDb. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, can uh, I ask you something? Yeah. I noticed that I wanted feels to me like a totally pretentious, like um, artsy thing that I can imagine someone's discussed, sure. which is the grandfather clock in <laughs> Donnie's home. Yeah had a frowny face it was like the the it, i think it might have been the uh, maybe it was tracking the moon phase or the date but when you looked at it as they came in and out it had a frowny face and i was like oh we're angry or sad at time okay yeah i understand yeah yeah that was a little <laughs> bit uh that was a little bit of a hey look at me and how how clever i am type of moment for sure oh yeah um, cause there was a bit of a clock motif. Uh, some of the philosophical discussion around it, uh, can go back to, and I can't remember which phil- philosopher it was who equated people, uh, and humans not having actual free will and were more or less just cogs inside it. Like the, the inner workings mm-hmm. of a clock were all okay. parts of the overall thing, but we all have our, our role to play. So there was definitely some clock kind of imagery going on, but yeah, it, I did notice that kind of the way those those dials in the middle of the clock lined up and the fact that they're pushing in like i get pushing in on the clock and showing that it's midnight and because we've you know we've made a big deal over the 28 days and 12 or 6 hours and whatever it is but then i'm looking at it like ah, that clock has a frowning face that's silly <laughs> <laughs> that's silly and it makes the movie dumber but you know it is what it is um no, I think this is definitely a movie worth seeing. Uh, hopefully, you you haven't watched it already and don't get spoiled from our discussion of it. But but at the same time, you still, I mean, even if you know, e- even listening to us talk about it for the last hour, you can still go into that movie. You're not really going to know exactly what's coming. And it's still going to spark those questions in your brain, I feel like. Or you may watch it and just be like, it was dumb. I don't ever want to watch that again. And if that's the case, okay. That's fine. Um, I didn't feel that way, but no, I think it's definitely worth watching, even with if you're filled with this knowledge we've given you and go into it because there is so much going on. It occurred to me we barely mentioned one of the primary characters, which was um, the girl. Oh yeah, whose name Gretchen. I just I just called her Low Rent Kristen Stewart when I was taking <laughs> notes. That's what she looked like to me. But like you know, there's I guess she's that was the. Um, the opening where I have trouble the uh, yeah I have emotional troubles too. It's, uh, uh, Gretchen, there's is the so much character, right? There's so much that goes on in this movie, uh, and it's definitely influential to a lot of things that have happened since. Mm-hmm. And worth uh, worth taking a look at. Oh, absolutely. 
and that's she's played by Jenna Malone, and uh, she is the characters in this movie are all centered around Donnie, um, and sort of influencing him. Right, they're pushing him in whatever direction he has to go, whether it's on purpose, like Frank is, or mm-hmm. unknown to themselves, like Gretchen or uh, Drew Barrymore's character, or you know the mom, um, even like Kitty and. Uh, Patrick Swayze's characters and what they do influencing where Donnie goes. Um, they're all like, they're all there to serve that. And that's, you know, it's intriguing because it does give that whole, that whole idea of a chosen one. But then like we said earlier, if you then, uh, prescribe to the idea that it's all inside Donnie's head and it's all sort of this dream sequence, then that really makes sense that everyone would be pushing him in a direction because it's all from his point of view. Right. So, yeah, I definitely like like that quite a bit. Um, pardon me. Um, yeah, it, this is a fun movie. I'm glad that you finally got to see it. I'm glad that it also wasn't, by its nature, it wasn't a movie that could really be ruined for you, but at the same time, you sort of were able to come into it with kind of a clean slate. Like, you didn't have, you had the, 20 years or so of people saying how much, how good it was, but it didn't sort of ruin that for you either in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad for that. Um, yeah, it's, it's good. It's worth watching, watch, watch it. And it's streaming free in like three or four different places. You can watch it on IMDb TV, Tubi TV. Uh, I think there's like one or two others where they've, they put limited commercials in there, but if you don't want to spend, See, I didn't throw down the $4 to watch it commercial free. Sure. I I owned the DVD, so I had it on my my collection um, on my Plex server. But you know, if you don't want to spend the four dollars on it, you can still watch it, and I think it's worth it. The music too; the music is just awesome. the The feel, the aesthetic of it. Take it in its context. It is two thousand one. It is twenty years ago. So there's a lot, and it influenced a lot of filmmakers. I sort of I'd mentioned this earlier where I could. I could tell or I could feel that this was kind of a first movie for somebody. I'm not saying that Richard Kelly is on the level of a Quentin Tarantino because I think Quentin Tarantino is such a fantastic writer and director. But this feels like, to me, this feels like um, Reservoir Dogs, where Reservoir Dogs is written and directed by Tarantino and you can see the seeds of like, this guy really knows what he's doing. I feel like you get that with Richard Kelly here. Unfortunately, most of what he's done since this, I haven't really cared a whole lot for. Um, but, uh, you know, Southland Tales was really the other one. I guess he did write Domino, uh, which was directed by Tony Scott, starring Keira Knightley. I, I did enjoy that. I thought that was a fun movie. Um, but, like, he did The Box that came out. That was his last movie in 2009. He hasn't done anything since then. Um, that was a weird movie, too. So... But it definitely it does feel like a like like a like a early version and and I want to see that get refined and unfortunately Southland Tales and the box were such bombs that he just hasn't been able to kind of latch on. Um, I recall Southland Tales and I I think I saw it I, I I can't remember exactly or I saw a lot about it and I was intrigued by it um, and all I can really picture in my head is weirdness yes it's definitely got that it's got a hell of a cast though i mean 
Dwayne Johnson, Sean William Scott, Sarah Michelle Geller, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, Will Sasso, John Lovitz. I forgot John Lovitz was in that. Huh. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched it in quite a while. I might have to watch it again. But anytime you get a movie that's got a 50% score, uh, it's usually not great um, mm-hmm. when it's that divided. Like this movie, you know, Donnie Darko's user score is closer to 80%. And some of that, I think, hurts him in a way, too, because it's sort of that M. Night Shyamalan effect where Shyamalan burst on the scene with with The Sixth Sense. And then for the rest of his career, he's had to try and live up to that. Right. And that's such a high bar to clear. And on top of like, he's good, but not great. And I think that's the same thing with Richard Kelly. He's good. But I don't know that I would call him a great filmmaker based on his what he's made. But this movie set such a high bar that now he's got to try and match that again with Southland Tales or with The Box. And it's going to be nearly impossible to kind of recapture that cult hit thing. It's just hard to do. You know, it's, it's hard to be Spielberg who can bust out of the gate with his first major movie being uh, Jaws and keep making good movies. Um, that's not an easy thing to do. That's why there aren't a lot of Steven Spielbergs out there that can make <laughs> bankable and enjoyable and watchable movies one after the other for the most part. Right. It's hard to do. But this is definitely a good one. Donnie Darko, uh, like I say, it's it's available everywhere. It's It's got some weird imagery. Um, that rabbit will haunt you. Right. Frank as uh, the large bunny rabbit will, will haunt your dreams. Um, but, you know, it's fun. I definitely enjoy it. I'm glad that you got to see it. Yeah, I'm glad as well. It's always fun to find a movie I've never seen to and get you to inspire me to go check it out. That's what we're here for. Uh, speaking of next week, I've got another fun one. Um, where do we go? Uh, Dennis from the Botched Podcast is going to come on. He's never seen the Blues Brothers. Oh, my word. So we're fixing that next week. I can't wait. I have not watched that movie in a while, but man, is it is does, do I have memories of it? So this, I want this should four be four fried chickens and a coke <laughs> and dry I, white I, toast. There's so many parts of that movie that I can just rattle off. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, I can't wait. So that's gonna be a fun one. Um, and speaking of Tarantino, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm gonna be talking Pulp Fiction Ooh. with uh, Sean White. Um, is gonna be my guest. Um, it goes by Cyrenex online. He's never seen it before. He mentioned that to me and I said, sold. We are doing that movie, uh, because I can talk about Tarantino all day. So I'm really excited for the next couple of weeks here with, uh, Blues Brothers, Pulp Fiction and the Birdcage. Another of my favorite movies. So should be fun, uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being on this week. This was, this was great. I I love having talks with you because you bring, you bring a different, uh, perspective on stuff. Um, and, and it's just great. We always have a good conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Travis. It is a pleasure. It's been a while since I've been behind the mic. So this is really exciting and getting me energized to get out and make some more stuff to put out in the world. So, uh, thank you for inspiration. Absolutely. I am happy to inspire. Uh, so until next week, until Blues Brothers, um, this show you can find at uh, tvstravis.com or anywhere you get podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google. I probably do need to put myself on Spotify for this show at some point. I just haven't. 
Um, I have my reasons for not liking Spotify's podcasting personally. However, it's a good platform. I should really jump on there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, tvstravis.com is the easiest way to find it because I named the show with punctuation and it's hard to search for. Uh, and from there, you can subscribe in whatever format you want to. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter is where I'm most active, at TV's Travis. So, you know, you want to talk movies, uh, send me some messages. Hit me up on there. I love to talk movies all the time. Um, as anyone that knows me will know. I will talk at length whether you want to or not. So let's make that work. Um, but until next week, until the Blues Brothers with Dennis from Botched, enjoy your movies and be excellent to each other. How did you feel? being denied these hungry, hungry hippos. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>